I just had one of the most insightful conversations I think I've ever had about race, about religion with Ganesh Charian. A good, I think we've been here for a good hour and a half. Yeah, an hour and 40 minutes at Olive Cafe. <laughs> and then when I turned to push stop, I realized that I didn't push start properly. I definitely pushed that record button. Unless you were there, you'll never have the opportunity to enjoy something I learned. We can have a, we'll have a, another discussion, and it doesn't won't be exactly the same, of course. But I think we could. But I want the conversation we just had. I want that because it was just beautifully articulate, and there were strategies in there. There were things you shared where someone could say, "Oh, I can do that. I can actually try that in my life and start to make a difference and start to be better." And I can understand that there's prejudice and privilege it's a two-edged sword for everybody Um, maybe I should contact Apple because your phones are always listening and I'll say can you give me that last hour and 40 minutes that I know you were listening in on can you give that to me what's your uh, no what I'm saying is you're more than welcome to come home with me if you want to do that let's do that any more time with you I I, I will make time okay Test, test, test. The lines are going up. Are the lines going up? The lines are going up. Oh, excellent. Test, test. Conversation number two with Ganesh Cherian. The first conversation lost because of my incompetence in pushing the record button properly. So this is conversation number two. Just to to give context, um, we had a good, a a fantastic conversation um, about race religion and uh, stuff peripheral to that and uh, I didn't record it um, so now this test shows that it's recording cool turning the phone off and we're doing it again so I don't <laughs> I don't think I, we probably shouldn't even try to you know to to redo the conversation let's just continue the conversation or see where it leads us you know I think you know we were, we were kind of talking about the events of the current situation, especially in the US, with mm. looking at kind of race relations and what that means. And so, my first question to you at Olive, or my first question to Ganesh at Olive, was Ganesh being of mixed race, um, European mother, Indian father, um, to whether you had experienced racism before. And I must admit, I thought you were going to say oh you know the odd thing here or there but not really but I, it was really interesting to learn that yeah you're yeah well I th- well I think that um yes I have experienced racism and yet at the same time I, f- I feel very privileged like I feel like I I, I get to um I've had a, a, an amazing life and and I don't feel like it's been overly difficult but there are some things which are sadnesses, I guess. You know, I, I, when we talked about this a little bit before, my, my name's a little different. It's it's hard to say if you haven't heard a lot of it before. It's difficult to spell. You might not be able to know how to say it even if you see it. Um, so 
a lot of times um, I've had to explain my name and have had it mispronounced or even if I've tried to correct people they haven't been able to get it um, so there's a little bit of angst around that and that's carried through my whole life and it's it's amazing how much getting a name right is important I know in education one of the many ways in which you can show competency in um, in te reo Māori or tikanga Māori is pronouncing names correctly you know uh, if Rangamari is, is is in the classroom and and you're, you 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 pronounce her name and you do your best to pronounce it with confidence and you do it right, she f- immediately feels like she is a person. You know what I mean. So I know there's a big thing in education in New Zealand, pronouncing people's names correctly so that they immediately feel like they belong in the classroom. Uh, and it's so so it, it makes sense you talking about that with your name as well. Yeah, that it's important. If people don't get it right, it makes a difference, you know. Oh, and and especially if they choose not to get it right. I um one time I was visiting my parents were overseas, and I went to go to my um, grandparents, and went to the local country school which had my cousins in it. So these were my, you know, people I loved, yeah. and. It was kind of a small country school with two classrooms, you know, so a mix of ages. And the, and I was only there for a couple of weeks, but the principal of the school, he would not pronounce my name correctly. You know, and he, 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 I can't even remember, but I must have been eight or nine. And he said my name. I said, no, this is how you say it. And he said it again wrong. And I said, oh, look, this is how you say it. And he was he was like, look, I, this is how I'm going to say it. And if you don't like it, you don't have to come to school here. Are you serious? Yeah. Wow. So it was kind of like, oh, what? Uh, and I was there with my cousins and I wanted to spend the time with them. And so I shut up, of course, because he was in charge. And if he didn't have his way, then I would be out of school and I had to stay home with my grandparents instead of being with my cousins. And wow. And it was, yeah, it was kind of that. And I was a confident kid who felt very loved, and he was not. He was somebody who, you know, really, you know, disliked that. And I would. I was the only kind of kid of color at that at that uh, at that space. And, wow. And my cousins thought he was a dick, and said <laughs> so. But, um, but it still meant I had to kind of defer to him you know, my name, my identity, because he either was not willing to, or or maybe he even was, um, you know, he was, you know, didn't want me to be there. Right, right. So, so it was kind of, that's kind of a tricky situation that I had to navigate as a child. How, how, How old were you then? I think I was eight or nine. Wow. So it wasn't, I was old enough to recognize that it was wrong, but not, able to kind of articulate what was yeah, going on yeah. or understand maybe what was going on um later on in life too i had the, the the kind of the problem where um you know there were some girls i quite liked whose parents weren't very excited about them dating somebody that they considered was outside their culture yeah, yeah. and um and you know these were people i 
had spent a lot of time with and we were really good friends with, but when it came to actually turning that into some kind of romantic thing, it was, yeah, I I was not worthy for yeah. their, you know, and they'd, they'd come from a culture where, you know, the idea of um, marrying outside your race was kind of deemed to be a problem. Mm. Um, and I came from a culture where my parents were, you know, from completely different cultures. So, um, so I thought it was quite normal and certainly not nothing to be worried about. Um, even when Lindy and I got married, you know, some of her friends questioned her about, you know, whether it was an issue that um, she was marrying somebody and she, like me. And she was like, well, what do you mean? And they go, you know, he's, you know. <laughs> and the implication being that I was brown and a foreigner. My wife's from the states, and so the the idea that you know, yeah. So those those are the things that have been uh, you know interesting. And of course, mm. I, we've gone on to have children. My wife's American. We've got a, a range of different ethnic, well, kind of shades in our family. We've got five boys. Some of them are very fair. Some of them um, are kind of quite olivey. Yeah. And I've got one child who's uh, you know probably as dark as me, if not a little bit darker. Um, so we've got a bit of a range, and so it's interesting to navigate uh, these boys who have quite a you know quite a range of skin colours in our house, and in some ways that they that you know the fair ones have some real problems because they just burn in the sun. <laughs> the the olive ones you know just brown up beautifully. They're just gorgeous kids, and you know my my darkest my middle guy you know often looks really dark, you know, against the others. So yeah, yeah. it's interesting how they've navigated the kind of various skin tones in, in yeah, our yeah. family. Yeah. And even with their with their friends, you know, I, um, you know, they've got a number of friends, but I think, you know, it's not until you see each other's parents and you realise, oh, heck, you, you know, you're this fair kid, but you've got this dark dad. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's... It's never. Well, I'm fortunate to live in a place where it's um, it's pretty, uh, you know, pretty acceptable, and I've always felt quite generally quite comfortable. But there have been those rare exceptions where I've been felt concerned. When I lived at, we lived in the states for a little while, and um, my neighbour called. Uh, you know, I was out on the deck singing. I was I played guitar and I was out there singing, and my neighbour kind of called out, and I was singing like. American pop music or something like that. And anyway, my my neighbour who he yelled out, you know, stop that, you towel head, and you know, <laughs> really, yeah. So, um, which is one of the uh, one of the reasons why we didn't end up staying in the states. I think, as much as I hate to admit it, was the idea that I f felt like America had lots of racial issues, even in the little town that we lived. Um, and it was just a pain dealing with those yeah. kind of things. Although, to my credit, being from New Zealand, you know, and I got huge amounts of privilege from being in from New Zealand. We lived in this little tiny town in Wyoming, and New Zealand was known for hunting. Oh right, okay. And um, and so often people would be—I don't know if they're weary is the right word—but you know, 
they were you know, not necessarily be particularly interested in me, but for the moment I'd open my mouth and they could hear my accent and find out where I was from, you know, I was like a celebrity. So it's really funny that on one, you know, from looking at me, I was often, because I'm very ambiguous looking, I was often kind of assumed to be of Latin American kind of, Mexican maybe even, uh, heritage. But the moment somebody talked to me, they'd tell I was from somewhere else and I'd, you know, it would change the conversation at yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, you know, we talked about this a little bit before. Was that um, there's something interesting about being slightly ambiguous, but also when people assume you might be less than, um, and then you surprise them by being very articulate or being different than they expected, then you gain a sense of trust, which is which is over exaggerated. Mm, it's mm. like. Um, I expected this interaction to be, it's kind of like, I guess, like expectations in general. You know, if you, if you, if something matches your expectation, you're quite content, you know, if something is less than your expectation, you're disappointed, you know, but if you, if you, if your experience exceeds your expectation, you're often quite elated, you know, you're really surprised and really excited. So part of being brown um, has been, in many instances, exceeding the expectation which has been put on me, you know, a visual expectation that then turns into a kind of a whole another realm. You know, yeah, people yeah, yeah. talk to me and find out I'm articulate and thoughtful and intelligent and and well rounded, and and suddenly I go from being, eh, whatever, to being someone that they go, wow, this is someone interesting. And so I've, there's an odd kind of advantage that I've got from that kind of prejudice which turns into a privilege Mm. so I find that kind of stuff quite fascinating how that kind of works out and how it's worked out for me in many instances and um and you talked about that that two-edged sword the, the the privilege and the prejudice well I think everybody has privilege and prejudice built into their kind of life right you know whether it's how you dress or, or, you know, maybe coming either from poverty or from wealth or whether it's you've got great skin or poor skin or um, some that might be stuttering or just not feeling very confident or, you know, whatever it is. But everybody's got a kind of almost like a list of times when their, their particular circumstances advantages them and also disadvantages them. And everybody's slightly different. So if you can kind of figure out what those things are in yourself or maybe even identify them in others, you can utilize them to to build bridges. You know, if you can see that somebody else is uncomfortable in groups and you can kind of make them feel at ease, you know, you'll be their best friend. Mm -hmm. Or if um, you can see that somebody kind of just blurts out stuff, you know, that's not very... um, you know, eloquent, but if you can, you know, you can, you know, laugh at their jokes and and make them feel at ease, and um, you know, you'll you'll be somebody that they really trust, you know, to represent you or to to be around you. And so, I I feel like some of the things that have caused me some hurt, especially over maybe my name that's odd or uh, my parentage that's kind of a bit, you know interesting you know those have given me 
opportunities to, you know, to see that everybody has those. And so if you can identify them and address them and make people feel amazing, especially in the stuff that they find worried about, um, then you'll, you'll, you'll make lifelong friends mm. and, and you'll be able to make incredible things happen, which I think is, you know, look, I, I think there's a really interesting connection between privilege and prejudice and there's a there's a kind of line in between where, where everything wonderful things happen you know we love those movies where the the underdog succeeds after all odds or um you know where somebody has you know really had something terrible happen to them but they're able to conquer that you know those are the those are the great stories of yeah, yeah. of that we we love to be entertained by you know actually a, a great new zealand story about that is a manuka honey right Manuka honey was the honey that, uh, you know, beekeepers used to get from, you know, the, the manuka around their properties, right? But it's that kind of, it's dark, it's bitter, kind of slightly bitter. And, you know, they, they, they collected it because the, the bees would just harvest it, right? But at the end of the, um, the season, if they hadn't sold their honey, their manuka honey, they would tip it into the bin so that they could reuse the container. Wow. <laughs> That's how worthless Manuka honey was, right? Wow. And, but then somebody found out that Manuka honey, you know, did, had all these healing properties. And then Manuka honey went from the thing that you threw away to the thing that was, you know, liquid gold. Yeah. You know, people are planting Manuka and putting hives on their farms to, you know, to get Manuka honey because that stuff is, you know, sells for a pretty penny. Yeah. But that's a, a fantastic story, right? Yeah, like yeah. it's a, you know, the, the dross, the thing that you threw away has now become the thing that is prized above all other. You know, that's, that's such a great story. And it tells us a little bit about, you know, how we can value things and how, how changing the narrative might completely change the, uh, you know, what's going on. Yeah, changing yeah. the narrative, completely changing the value we put on something. Yeah, very true. And look, I make headstones, so uh, that's my, my job, right? In some ways, I'm not... The headstones are physical manifestation. What I'm actually selling is comfort. Right? I'm taking somebody's terrible experience or, or maybe heartache and trauma associated with somebody that they love who has died and then hopefully transforming them into a into a space where they feel amazing about it. Yeah. Right? And we do that by helping them create something. So in some ways creativity is almost like a an antidote for grief. Right. You know, when you when you create something from your pain, you're able to trans, trans, transcend it. Um, now, people come to us because, you know, they don't know how to do that, right? You know, how do you transform? And they don't know what they're doing. And they, and so they come with a whole lot of maybe preconceived ideas about what what needs to happen. They might not know what the process is. And because they, you know, you might only have one or two really significant people in your life die. You know, it's not something you get really good at, yeah. right? <laughs> you would hope not. <laughs> no, most people don't. So, um, so they come to us because we're good at it. We've done it for hundreds and thousands of people, right? So we take their prejudice, we use our privilege because we've done it a lot, and then in the middle of those two things, we create this beautiful monument, sculpture, maybe even to... Um, somebody that they care about. And in that process of creating that, we've transformed their experience, 
We've given mm. them a whole nother emotion, right? From you know, feeling disabled by somebody they love who's died to feeling really grateful and empowered by this creative process. Is the outcome of that the potential that you've turned that prejudice into a privilege? Potentially, is that right? Because now there's no fear around it. It's It's been turned into a great experience. It's been supported by someone's expertise and their experience in their own privilege and now they walk away and it's become something beautiful and something that doesn't hold them back is it would, would that be that's absolutely right right and of course because there's so much fear around death can be a lot of trauma around death it's such a, a deep emotion that you want to change and people are willing to pay a, quite a premium for that right right and we can utilize our skills to to turn that and you know, that thing around for them. And we've got this physical representation, which is this, you know, headstone, which is going to be around for hundreds of years to mark this. But the actual thing that that we've got is this whole process of empowerment yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. for the people. Yeah. And and so, so I guess that's when I'm thinking about the stuff in the States, you know, and it's a, and it's a raw process. Obviously, people are feeling really... Um, hurt about change and what that means and you know I, I, I can understand that and I sometimes get a little bit overwhelmed by it mm. but if I can step back enough I can see well you know part of that rawness is in that prejudice and that disadvantage that feels really hard and yet if we can we can create something you know you can get that, all that healing and perhaps and empowerment you know the idea that you can stand up for what you believe that you can change you know thoughts and attitudes you know, maybe even that you can you know have systems re-evaluated and, and worked in ways that that hopefully help people especially people like you so yeah so i think that's a that's i mean i guess there, there's some fear around that right you know riots don't feel very building <laughs> you know but um and they can feel very scary if you're especially in the yeah. middle of it or it's it's your property that's been damaged. Um, and yet there's a lot of, um, you know, I there might be opportunities for lots of people to, to be seen who otherwise don't get seen or stories that, that, um, that, that you know, you, you get to tell, you know. Like I get to tell, talk about the story about this principal who just made me feel terrible about my name yeah, yeah you know and funnily enough enough of those experiences which i had plenty growing up um some really overt like that some much more covert you know the whole idea of oh, where are you from you know um well i'm from new zealand you know i've lived here my whole life <laughs> you're obviously from somewhere else or tell me about your parents you know that, that kind of thing because i was brown i was obviously from somewhere else and um, you know that that translated into me as a kid feeling very concerned about meeting new people, especially adults, um, because you know they would ask me questions for which I you know didn't know how to articulate where I was from. Now, look, because I've done it thousands of times, I've got really good at it. Right, right. Um, but I've had to work through a process of feeling confident about that. Um, when I, you know, as a young kid, because I, my, my father's from India, my mother's from New Zealand, my mother went to India, well, you know, went travelling and ended up in India and I was born. But um, when, 
all of the family that I knew was really my mother's side growing up. My, um, my uncle, my dad's brother came to visit one time, really nice guy. But, you know, some of my ignorance, you know, I didn't even know he spoke English. Of course he spoke English. It seems crazy to me now, but um, I didn't know back then. I didn't know much about what it meant to be Indian. My, because my dad was from India, my mother was from, from um, New Zealand. We didn't kind of have, we didn't, we weren't connected to the Indian community in, in Wellington. So I didn't know a lot about Indians. I didn't know many Indians, and um, and I, and I, of course, I didn't feel Indian because all my all the people that were my family here in New Zealand were European, right? And so when people would ask me about my heritage, I didn't want to own it because it didn't feel like me. I didn't feel Indian. I grew up in Wellington, you know, and as a kid trying to explain your heritage to other people when you didn't really feel like you were connected to it often had bits of embarrassment attached to it and shame which I didn't know how to deal with what do you mean what do you mean embarrassment I mean like you know people people would ask me where I was from and I would say well I'm from here and then they'd want to probe further and like you know I'd have to kind of explain my family situation and you know my dad was Indian therefore you know they kind of pegged me as being Indian Right. But I didn't feel Indian, that I didn't relate to being an Indian. Yeah. So in some ways, that got my back up too, you know. Like, you know, you can't make me an Indian. I'm, you know, I'm not an Indian. I'm New Zealander. I'm Kiwi. And, uh, you know, and I didn't know how, quite how to deal with that. It wasn't yeah. until I went, um, uh, not until I went to India and met, uh, you know, my family, um, and and they were just such wonderful people. My dad's, you know, siblings and cousins and aunties and uncles, they were just amazing people. Yeah. You know, I came back from India going, wow, these people that I'm related to are amazing. And finally, you know, when people would ask me, you know, what are you? Because I knew that what the question was, right? Yeah, you know, because yeah. I had you a thousand times, wanted you know, yeah. they wanted to know what I was. And then I'd say, look, I'm Indian. You know, and then they would say, well, you don't look Indian. I'd say, oh, well, I'm not a very good-looking Indian, you know. <laughs> but, um, you know, it wasn't until I'd been to India and, and connected with my family and felt like they were people I was, could be proud of mm. that I wanted to have that heritage of something. And now, of course, I feel very I feel very Indian, even though, well, that's how I would, you know, describe myself. And... Um, and be and celebrate that culture for a good yeah. half of my life. That wasn't that wasn't the case. That wasn't the case. Yeah. But yeah, you know, there was yeah, you know, there's bits of embarrassment and shame attached to it. And of course, that translated into other. I don't always think that I treated other brown people in my community with with as much um, respect as well. Because my European, you know, my European side, that had lots of privilege attached to it, right? So I wanted to be identified in that space as European, because you know, Kiwi European, because you know, nobody, nobody asked me. Well, I still had to deal with it, but you know, I wanted to be identified in that space, but people wouldn't let me identify in that space because I was physically brown. Right. Um. 
but that also meant that you know I might have gravitated to more I guess European friends because that made it made me feel a bit more legitimate as a European you know and maybe didn't see the value of, of my you know cultural friends <laughs> funnily enough I, I went from Wellington to Hamilton and went to boarding school church school and predominantly the the um the kids at that school were were Māori and Pacific Island, and the white kids were in the minority. Whereas I'd grown up in Wellington, where the where the brown kids were in the minority, and so I was always trying to identify with the with the with the white kids, or the, you know the, my European side because that was where the privilege was. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. That's where the where people you know That's where, where the cachet was. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But when I went to church college, I um, you know there were a lot of Brown kids, and and suddenly the brown kids held, held the the privilege in the in the in the space, and and I, and because I was brown too, it took me a while. I didn't kind of fit in immediately, but um, but I could kind of riff off my kind of ambiguity, my brown ambiguity, yeah. to um to get some privilege in the system. And and it, what the the flips of what that happened, what that also happened to um, to me was that um, I kind of got to be involved in some you know like the the Maori group and the Cook Island group and and I I went to these kids you know houses and and I you know there was a emphasis on Maori culture particularly but you know going to Marais and being on the Marais and because I could kind of pass myself off as one of the cousins or the bros, I was able to kind of um, immerse myself in some of those cultures and really get some privilege mm. in the system, which was quite unusual to me because I hadn't uh, been in that situation before. I'd always kind of been in the minority skin tone wise, but mm. really you know, in a European background, knowing how to navigate that with my family. Mm. But here I was in this majority kind of, um, you know, Polynesian kind of quotient. And, I, and, and even though I was, I was still an outsider because I was an Indian, I was able to kind of slightly kind of, in, you know, enjoy some of yeah, that, yeah. that culture. And it, and it just, it didn't. I had these wonderful friends who were from... Māori families and Samoan families and and Tongan families even and and um, it gave me appreciation for them. I, I was telling you before that I later, much later, um, I went to Samoa for a for a trip, and I um, even though I had these kind of Samoan friends um, who were often from quite poor backgrounds you know because in New Zealand Samoan families are often doing the kind of real menial work in New Zealand bus drivers cab drivers cleaners um, rest care workers you know they're, so they're not professional jobs you know and so a lot of the families that I went to their homes great families really felt at home, always made me feel wonderful, yeah. fed me yeah, immensely, yeah, yeah. you know, just... Yeah. just The most hospitable people, yeah. Oh, fantastic. And I love that. I love, you know, always felt very welcome. 
Um, but because I'd only seen them in those kind of low spa low end spaces, I, I regret that I didn't see all that beautiful culture, you know. And so it wasn't until I went to Samoa and saw how what a wonderful place um, these people had come from, often sacrificed a great deal, especially, you know, status and mm. and family, you know, to to give their kids, you know, a, a, another way of life. Yeah, really made me feel ashamed that I'd ever thought of them as less than. Right, because you were and you were. You brought up a good point um, that, you know, within the Samoan community itself, there is this richness and this 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 hierarchy and, and, and the status that, you know, um, you can have within the community, even though a day-to-day -day job might not necessarily make it seem like the person has, you, you know, is um, has a lot of respect or, or that the person has a lot of privilege, but within their community within the Samoan community, for example, there is actually this richness of um, uh, solidarity and hierarchy and all these things, which I thought was really interesting. Is that what you saw when you were in Samoa? Did you? Yeah, well, I, well, I guess I saw it from an objective point of view that that these people had made some, you know, A, had come from really rich culture and B, had made some huge sacrifices right. to be in New Zealand where they were often in really lowly types of positions because they were really, you know, making sacrifices for the next generation. Right, yeah. And that was eye-opening to me and so beautiful. And I had not understood what was going on. Right, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, that kind of, it was a bit of an eye-opener. I felt like I had, you know, I mean, I, I thought I was so good, right? Because I knew I had... Samoan friends. I used to go to some of the things they had, and I appreciate the culture. And but I, I certainly recognise that that I had not understood a, a, a bigger picture of what was going on. Well, and I think you highlight the point of what you talked about before as well, where you were friends with people, but the moment you started dating their daughters, then all of a sudden it's a completely different story. We we are we can be interacting with things in a very surface level and without it being a conscious thing we may feel that we are doing a great job i think that's a yeah a really interesting insight it's funny too like i think now i i, I joke with the boys i mean they can pick whoever they want and hopefully they'll be available to, to um marry whoever they want but I always say to them look you know guys I've got a, a list here I want I want a um a Polynesian um uh daughter-in-law because I know she'll look after me in my old age <laughs> I, I I think that we should definitely have uh, you know one of you should marry a Chinese person because I think there's you know definitely some you know that area of the world is going to be dominant in the future and it'll be lovely to have you know grandchildren I'd love to have a um a Maori grand child because I, I, I think I, I, it motivate me to learn you know te reo and, and, um, and really learn my language and, yeah. and be able to help impart that to my grandchildren. So you know the idea that you know I'm the product of an international marriage. I married somebody from America, you know that, that chances are my, my children may 
well will marry people from all over the world and and I'm excited about that yeah, yeah. you know and and that to me seems like a, a hybrid kind of a scenario you know I, I want you know these these differing cultures that will will enrich our family and mm. and and give me these like diverse you know legacies going forward you know but you could also equally see that as you know and I'm sure that's what the parents of these girls that I was interested in dating, you know, they, they saw me not as a hybrid, they saw me as a mongrel. <laughs> and if I involved myself in their family, their grandchildren would be mongrels, you yeah, know, yeah, not yeah. hybrids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so, so it's interesting about what you see as an advantage and what you see as a disadvantage when you're, when you're um, creating relationships and yeah. building families and all that kind of stuff you know like I married an American I married a while while that person was outside of you know the, you know Kiwi culture um, uh, you know she embodied a uh, a privileged group right American and you know being in the church where it was kind of an American church where mm. uh, you know American stuff was privileged over maybe New Zealand stuff. You know, marrying an American gave me status in a uh, community that valued America. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I don't know that I was particularly conscious of that when that happened, but it certainly had some impacts. You know, I did. You know, I got privilege in a community. I mean, I wasn't unprivileged. But it certainly elevated my privilege by, you know, marrying somebody who had a greater status in a particular um, mm. space. I guess it added privileges to your list yeah. of privileges. Yeah. A whole new set of yeah. privileges. And those felt good. <laughs> and it's funny to think that that by marrying, I managed to gain some privileges. I don't know that she managed to gain some privileges <laughs> from marrying me. Yeah. Although... <laughs> Again, but you know that same kind of culture, that church culture had some, and we talked about this before. Had some definite privileges and prejudices, right? Mm. So things that were valued in the community were, you know, um, if your man was valued, um, or, or um, you know, being married was valued. Of course, coming along, you know, connected to that as being heterosexual, obviously. Um, if you had children, was valued. Um, if you're connected, had roots in America, was valued. Um, so I started to tick lots of boxes very quickly in my in, in my marriage to Lindy, mm. um, in in this kind of community, mm. and and feeling those privileges. Well, I didn't know that was what I was feeling, right? I just knew that people kept asking me stuff and asking for my opinion. And, yeah, yeah. Um, and you held positions of responsibility yeah. as, yeah, after that. And so, and, and so that felt really good. It felt like I was succeeding and yeah. people were, were looking to me for answers about how to do this. And so I, I, I don't think I recognize that as privilege. I just recognize it as reward for my good living. <laughs> it wasn't until later that I recognized that I was, I was ticking a whole lot of boxes that were really valuable in this community, and um, and that felt good. Yeah. And it felt like I therefore I was worthy. And it wasn't until much later that I realised that other people who weren't ticking the same boxes as I were, 
Um, We're having a completely different experience. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, in every community, there are privileges and prejudices, things for which you become, you get more kudos and for th- things for which you might be, you know, cast aside, you know, and they, and they can be pretty tough ones, right? You know, if you, if you live in a communal culture, um, you know, children might be really important. So if you're, you know, unable to have children, you know, you, you know, you might feel very on the out, um, or, or a community that it values, you know, high education and, and, you know, you don't go to, you know, university, you know, you, you, and all your siblings did, or, you know, you might feel really kind of mm. um, disadvantaged or, or maybe not adhered to, you know. So, and every community has slightly different parameters about what's valuable. Yeah. And those things change over time too, right? Um, you know, like, I think growing up, I felt really um, uh, conspicuous being brown because lots of the spaces I was in was were very, you know, very European spaces. The school I went to, I was probably the darkest kid there. Mm. Um, but I, over time, you know, some of the things which were a disadvantage when I was younger have become an advantage now, like, the fact that I am slightly ambiguous in my in my racial category means that I, I get um, you know I can I can walk in a room and I can see everybody in there and I can pretty much talk to anybody you know yeah, if yeah, they're yeah. Samoan I know I can talk to them about far Samoa and if they're Tonga and I you know I can have a good conversation if they're Maori we can have a chat and you know if they're European I've got that covered too you know yeah, yeah. and and I've travelled you know. As I've got older, I've travelled too, and so I've been to lots of places, and I can usually find a connection, you know, that makes, uh, you know, a relationship possible. Yeah. So that's kind of got better and better and easier. And so actually, my like it, my name, which as a kid was really a problem, um, started to become a real advantage. You know, I'm the only Ganesh that people knew. So. So you're instantly memorable. Yes. <laughs> Um, and so, or the other thing that's happened, you know, people who have traveled, you know, and gone to India, you know, Ganesh is a Hindu god, right? So, yeah. so, um, I've, I've had people, you know, I tell them my name and they're just like enthralled. They're like, wow, your name's Ganesh, you know, oh, I'm so glad to meet you. you know? So uh, while my name has been times where people have found it really tough and I've felt instantly disconnected from people yeah. because of my name. I've also had the opposite experience where people have you know, literally loved me for no other reason than my name. So that's a really interesting idea that I've come, that I, that I, you know, for something that caused me a lot of angst as a child has ended up being a huge blessing in my life yeah. you know, later on. You know, it, it does endear me to some people straight away. It has meant that I'm memorable you know those kinds of things, and um, but I still have, I still have angst around it. You know, especially in email exchanges that, you know, with clients, people inquiring about work. You know, I, I'm worried my name's foreign sounding a little bit different, and it's much easier if they're talking to them on the phone. They can hear my Kiwi accent and and feel kind of. There's trust sure. there, yeah, 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 yeah. Whereas I worry when I put Ganesh, you know, the the, the automatic thought is is this. 
this is the same voice that I will hear from from a call center in Delhi, you know, asking me about uh, you know, home wireless or whatever, yeah. you know. Um, so, you know, so there's still, a, you know, I I still have to navigate my name and what it means and have to try and exceed those expectations, you know, which sometimes is a challenge and sometimes just exhausting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, there's, there are there are advantages and disadvantages, and I and I guess that whole conversation about what is an advantage, what is a disadvantage. I think there's two components. One is the idea that there are definitely some systematic kind of stuff going on which needs to be addressed, and I think having conversations to to recognise that and change that is really important. Mm. Um, and then there's other part of you know recognizing that well, actually being part of a culture um, gives you some advantages somewhere you know there is some privilege there and and maybe celebrating that privilege too mm. and and being willing to see s- some good in that yeah um, and I don't know that everybody's slightly different and I mean I hopefully I I um I've come. F- I, 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 I've recognised enough st- tough stuff in my own life that I can appreciate that I've got a lot of privilege now, um, and hopefully I can utilise that privilege to to address pe- other people who are underprivileged for whatever reason. Um, and in fact, you know, a lot of my success in business and work is is, is really about. You know, being compassionate and seeing other people in pain and being able to alleviate that pain in some mm, way, mm. you know. And I think there's a lot of pain that comes from just a, a not feeling confident, being embarrassed, um, you know, not knowing what to do. And um, you know, and if you can address those quickly with people, you can really make a difference. Yeah. You know, and so that means hearing them, hearing their angst, um, uh, being able to know how to um, let them know that they're being heard. I think most people just want to be heard in many ways. Yeah. But also then, you know, giving them opportunities to be creative with what they've got to turn it into something of value that can bless them and other people's lives and make them feel empowered yeah 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 so awesome being with you and you know we yeah enjoy that you enjoy enjoy that you're so you want to learn i've listened to your other podcasts and there's 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 people you know you know great people with some wonderful perspectives on life and and how to live and yeah very lucky yeah yeah so the idea that you bring these to everybody's fantastic you know yeah well thanks sir Thanks for being part of it. Awesome.